You know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another week of the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm so excited to be here hosting the show. If you don't know what's going on with Rec Poker, we're a group of enthusiastic recreational poker players. Uh, we love studying together, playing together, commiserating together, celebrating together. Uh, we do it all in this poker uh, community that we formed called Rec Poker. You can go get a free account right now. Just scroll on over to rec.poker and sign up. All it takes is an email address and a smile. And because of so much uh, of what we do is free, I have to thank our sponsors, the amazing uh, Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino, which have been with us since way back when. We appreciate their support. We appreciate the support of all our premium members who pledge their $15 a month to uh, keep us going and to let us keep doing the, uh, the fun stuff that we do. Um, but the free members are a huge part of what we do here, and that's why our audience is a great part of uh, Rec Poker Nation. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, I, I talk often about how the Wrecking Crew is the real uh, magic makers behind the scenes here at Rec Poker. Uh, my name is Jim Reed, Bluffsterini in the home game, and you can find me on Twitter at Rec Poker Jim. Uh, but I'm just the guy in front of the mic on Mondays. Like I say, it takes a whole crew. If you want to find out more about me and the Wrecking Crew, you can go to rec.poker slash crew, or you can just listen up because you're going to meet a few of them tonight, starting with the Ben, the man, Enslow. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Uh, BJamin96 on Twitch is how you find all my stuff, um, all my Twitter and everything there. Um, and I'm East Coast Bitter in the home game. And I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5B5 on Twitter or 5x5 in the Poker Stars home game. I'm Rob Washam, and you can find me Rabman50 just about everywhere. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is the forums edition of the podcast where we get right into the strategy conversation. Normally, uh, on our chats edition of the podcast, we uh, invite uh, someone from the world of poker, a luminary from the poker world to come and talk on the show, get to know them and their story a little better. We got to have uh, Rob Gardner on the show uh, last year after uh, he and I got paired up to play each, uh, against each other in the World Series of uh, uh, World Series of Poker main event last year, which was a spectacular amount of fun, topped only by the amount of fun we had on the chats edition of the podcast when Rob came on afterwards. And Rob said, you guys are having so much fun. I got to come back. Bring <laughs> me back. We're going to talk some strategy on the forums. And so, Rob Gardner, I am so pleased to have you back on the Rec Poker Podcast. Thanks for sharing your time with us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me, Jim. I, I, will, I will come on here anytime you want to talk about <laughs> virtually anything you want to talk about. <laughs> well, it's an easy group to get along with. I will say that. But you fit in like smack, my friend. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, now, let's start before we actually get. So the, the theme of the month this month at Rec Poker is playing multi-way pots. Um, and we'll get into that uh, shortly. But I want to hear a little bit about what's been going on with you since we had you last on the show. Uh, what are you getting excited about? We're recording this just before uh, the end of the new year, but it's going to come out in January. So I guess, first of all, happy holidays to you, my friend. And why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what you've been working on and what's exciting you about the world of poker these days? Yeah. So I got approached uh, coming out of the World Series by um, two people who uh, had the desire to do a big project in poker. Um, their goal was to overall try to bring 100,000 new faces into poker. And the way that they wanted to accomplish that was by trying to make the game more accessible, um, in particularly adding to the entertainment value of poker 
and also trying to make the game more accessible from an educational standpoint. Um, uh, and when they approached me, I was, I'll be honest, I was kind of apprehensive. I'd been out of streaming for almost two years and um, I wasn't sure at first if I wanted to get back into it, but when I kind of heard the vision for what they wanted to do, um, I started warming up to the idea quick. And then what really intrigued me was that they wanted to stay out of the limelight for a while and let the project breathe on their own. So these are people some of you may know, may not know. Um, and they've you know put a nice budget to this project to kind of give us the opportunity to do what we want to do. Um, but they're, they 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 don't want their name to influence the project in any way early on. So they're staying in the background and kind of being involved in a persona sort of way, but not making themselves known. And so uh, it, it's a really fun and interesting project. Um, there's a lot of plot that's been developed for the next several months. It's going to kind of intrigue the story. And part of the story will be people trying to figure out who's in charge and and kind mm-hmm. of all of the speculation that goes on with that. But most importantly, the project just aligned with my core values and that, you know, we want this game to be enjoyable. I think all of us got into this game originally because it's fun. And sometimes just the nature of poker is that the competitive nature of it, the intensity of it um, leads to this form of poker where it starts to become a chore and a grind. And, you know, especially on the educational front, a lot of the educational stuff, it's like, all right, guys. Hey, so you want to be a poker pro? Awesome. So first thing you need to do is study GTO 27 hours a day for about six and a half years. And then after you've memorized about 687,000 spots, then you need to practice for about another four years. And after not getting any sleep or eating for that amount of time, you're actually going to be decent. And then you just have to get your win rate up from there. And eventually you can be good. And it just, it makes learning poker miserable. Right. And, um, you know, we have to kind of shift the goalposts a little bit. It's like not everybody has to be a GTO master live edition of a poker bot playing super high stakes poker. Success in poker can be making a final table for the first time or some of the amazing friends that we get to meet by being in poker. Like, Jim, I never would have met you in any other endeavor. There's no way in the world that a guy from Canada who thinks smack is a cool thing and a guy from Canada... (laughs) who thinks this act is a dangerous thing, would ever cross paths if it wasn't for the great game of poker. So it all kind of encompasses in a way that's like, how can we bring more people into the game and make people have a better experience in the game um, as a whole? And so that's kind of the the premise of the project. And and it's got me excited. It's got me back in content. It's got me doing a lot of things on these fronts. And again, it just, it aligns with who I am and who I want to be in this game. Well, it sounds like a great mandate, the kind of thing that everyone here at Rec Poker would be right on board with. Um, you obviously you're very passionate about it. You're enjoying it. If people are listening and they haven't had a chance to get more involved, uh, where would you direct them? What, what's the best way for them to sign, kind of dip a toe in and see what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, probably checking out the stream. You can you can catch me over the stream at uh, twitch.tv slash pokerpastor. That was actually my old former name that going I, way I back. Yeah. yeah, we're going back a little bit. Um, that was one of the requirements that this, uh, I don't know what to call them. I mean, they have code names, but it sounds weird. Using <laughs> it. 
But my bosses were like, if you're coming back, you're coming back under the old name. That's when you were at your best. And we didn't like what you did after that. <laughs> I was going to say, that's when you were at your best is kind of like a subtle diss in a way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they were they were very blunt uh, about the whole thing. So, um, so, yeah, they can check me out over there. Obviously, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Gardner Live. And a lot of the stuff we're doing with the project will come out from there as well. Right on. So uh, one of your, your uh, along with uh, Ben Enslow here, uh, two of our Twitch streaming champions. I Thanks know for the this- rate, by the way, my friend. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I was super excited to see you live because I had heard the hype, you know, here at Rec Poker and hearing stuff about the stream. So I was, you know, I was excited to see you live. So yeah, I fired off the raid there. It just worked out perfect for for our session and stuff there. So yeah, that was awesome. And I loved hearing about the Easter eggs too. I, I caught a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see more on that. End, I, so. I grew up in the 80s, man. I can't even tell you how many years I wasted trying to get to Minus World and Super Mario Brothers 1 as a kid. <laughs> so um, all about it. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, uh, okay, so let's let's roll right on into it. I'm excited. I want to pick your brain, Rob. Um, just in case we get lined up at the same table of the World Series of Poker main event next year, I want to have a little more insight, a little more, uh, a little more uh, preparation. That I can take you apart on the felt, my friend, uh, when the time comes. So uh, Chris Jones, who's our uh, the director of membership content here, has a different theme of the month every month. Uh, the theme of the month in January is playing multi-way pots. Uh, Chris, I guess, why don't you start just by sort of talking about, in your mind, as you prepared some of the material that went into the uh, theme this month, what sort of stood out to you and what are, do you think are some of the most important factors when we're talking about multi-way pots? Well, I would love to hear Rob's uh, point of view before I yammer on about that. But one of the things I think the reason we did this uh, topic is um, just so many requests from our members saying like, you know, there's all these tools out there. There's all these like, you know, either, you know, charts or solves or or things that they've heard of or maybe experts even talking about it. But they all say, well, it's a heads up pot, you know, because we don't know how to figure this out. And it's so hard to figure out. And and then but but in my games, I end up playing more often, maybe not more often, but a lot of the time, especially in maybe lower stakes sort of recreational type tournaments we're heading to the flop with a lot of people in it. And I don't know how to necessarily take some of those lessons that maybe people are talking about, about at higher level poker, where, where we're, where we're going heads up most of the time into sort of pots. Like how do I approach these things differently? And I think that's where we really started the framework for talking about this is like, how do we, what is the difference about multi-way pots does it matter you know like when we when we hit a spot and we've got like a big draw do we play that the same when we have top pair top kicker do we you know uh, all the the kind of situations we find ourselves in and what do we do when those kind of players get active that are around us so i think that's maybe um, at least the framing of where we started. And Rob, I'd love to hear your thoughts um, in terms of like, you know, what what are your thoughts about sort of approaching uh, multi-way pots post-flop? Yeah, so really short, funny story. It's 2016. I'm in Cherokee for the uh, World Series of Poker circuit. 
And I had been playing a ton of online, been getting coaching, been, you know, just working my tail off. And so this is a chance to go out and play live. And, you know, it, anytime you haven't played live, I was like, it's a chance to show what you got, right? So I'm like, I'm all like locked in. I'm going to just run this circuit over. I'm going to be one of the best players. And I sit down at my first table and we go eight ways to every flop <laughs> for the first like 30 minutes. And I'm like, what is going on? Right. And so then I started like trying, I'm like, well, I'm going to push these guys out of the pot. And so I started raising to seven big blinds. Everybody would call. I started raising to 10 big blinds. Everybody would call. Finally, I got aces. I raised to like 16 big blinds pre-flop. There were like four limpers in front of me. I raised to 16 big blinds. I get four callers. <laughs> right flop comes king seven three and i just rip my aces i mean what else am i gonna do at that point guy across the table calls and i'm like oh god you got a set and he goes no i got three seven suited just oh. flips over bottom two pair and oh. like ships this like 230 big blind pot or something oh. and I, I walked to the exit and i remember calling my coach at the time i'm like what is going on like i don't know what to do um so it, that I, I think it's a great topic, and I think it is something that comes up a lot. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First, we don't really have solvers for multi-way pots. Um, it's not that the technology doesn't exist. It's that to run all of the iterations of what happens with three or four or five people in a play, you need like 50 supercomputers. We just don't have the power to do it. And so that's a good thing in the sense that, you know, sometimes we feel intimidated when we're playing poker with people. And we know that they can look up a typical heads up spot and see the answer. Those answers don't really exist for us yet in multi-way pot. So it makes the game a little bit more even keel. Um, we do have some premises when it comes to multi-way pots. Um, generally speaking, um, pre-flop, uh, the more people that call, like let's just say you're on the button and there's a raise. And as people are calling behind you, our squeezing ranges are going to get bigger. And that's generally because um, the people that are flatting tend to have capped ranges, right? They tend to represent dead money. Uh, and when we raise and we can squeeze two or three or four of those people out of the pot, what happens is our equity shifts, right? So let's just imagine a four-way pot and all things are equal. We all have the same ranges. We all have a 25% chance of winning the pot. Well, if you make a bet of any size and you get two of those four people to fold, you've just doubled your equity automatically. And that is an incredibly profitable thing in poker. Anytime you can increase your equity, it's huge. And so post-flop, it's kind of a similar concept in that a lot of the, the strategies that people will teach post-flop as far as multi-way pots is, you know, hey, use lots of small bets. Because if you make a small bet and you get even one person to fold, you just made equity and, and it makes it really well. And so while we don't have theory, there's kind of some, um, you know, general guidelines and rules. All that being said, one of the biggest issues we have is everything is so GTO and theory focused that we don't deal with the fact that we're in a real world, right? Um, anybody that's ever been in a fire drill and an actual fire alarm or a tornado <laughs> drill and actually had a tornado like heading for their house or so, you know that like real life and drill, they're not the same thing. Um, so I think that breaking down the, the situation on multi-wide pots, I think one of the most critical questions you have to ask is how aggressive are the opponents that I'm in the hand with? Because if you're in a situation, let's let's go back to the button situation, right? And there's a raise and there's a call and there's a call. What you're going to do in that situation is almost entirely dependent on your small blind and your big blind. 
And just look at the extremes, right? Let's just say the blinds behind you are really, really passive players who never raise. Well, now we have a bevy of options to us because if we want to take a hand multi-way, say we have an ace five of hearts, right? And we're like, hey, we got a hand, plays well multi-flop, multi-way. Um, we can flop coolers on people. You know, we can flop a flush, they can flop a worse flush, or we can flop a flush draw, they can flop a worse flush draw, or we can flop two pair against a pair. And I don't have to worry about being squeezed. It gives you the opportunity to decide. Can I squeeze? Sure. Is squeezing profitable? Yes. Can I just flat? Sure. Is flatting profitable? Yes. Right. And you have options. If the guys in the small blind and the big blind are like Daniel Cates and like <laughs> some other like high stakes, just aggressive reg who literally is going to squeeze every time on principle when you flat. Well, now flatting is really, really, really bad. And, and I don't think there's enough discussion about like understanding like who is behind you and letting that play in. A lot of the games we play, we really do end up in, in games where people don't squeeze anywhere near enough. Um, they don't understand squeezing. They, they, they kind of have this, I just want to see a flop, you know, um, or their squeezing range is really, 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 really tight. It's like, you know, aces, kings um ace king maybe ace queen if they've had a couple whiskeys uh and and that's it and so you know when they see a hand like pocket tens like well i gotta set mine with pocket tens what else are you gonna do with pocket tens you know pocket jacks well nobody ever wins with pocket jacks there's no point in doing anything with that um and when you have those situations it really gives you um amazing implied odds to be in a situation where you know you can take the hands that'll outflop your opponents and and take them post flop and be okay. Um, that being said, the coaching circles are all like squeeze, 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 squeeze. And at the end of the day, again, both strategies are profitable, but you have to be cognizant of your table. Another great factor with that, right? Again, like I talked about in the Cherokee circuit, squeezing is great, but if you're going to squeeze and get seven callers, all you're doing is unnecessarily inflating a pot and, and reducing your SPR which at that point is really, really good with your super premium hands, but not really as good now when you have your ace five suited, right? So I think it's very, very situational. I think you have to understand the dynamics of the table specifically you're in, of the game you're specifically you're in, and just be comfortable adapting to that and understanding how you can leverage that to your advantage, depending on what your hand strength is. And understanding, you know, hands like jack eight offsuit don't play well post-flop, right? But suited aces connected suited connectors pocket pairs that you can set mine with these are hands we don't really care if we're you know three ways five ways seven ways because the point is when we hit we want to get paid off so that's kind of like my overarching view like it's really dependent on the situation and obviously we can dive deeper into different situations if you want to and so um just to kind of like and just take us to so like i think there's some some questions about like the kinds of hands that we might want to squeeze with, or maybe we can go, we feel comfortable going multi-way, but when we do end up in a post-flop situation, uh, what I think I heard you say was bet small, but bet potentially often, particularly if you may be the, the pre-flop aggressor. Um, what, but the other thing that I like, so that is a conflicting sometimes statement. I see sure. also people talking about, be careful. You know, if we're going four ways, um, you, 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 
you can't go, you know, and you hit your, you've got ace queen, you opened ace queen, you get four callers, you hit your ace on the flop. You might not be able to go three streets with this and go broke with it. So how do we balance this idea of what I, what I loved what you said was when we make a small bet and we get two people to fold our equity doubles, even if we had this, you know, the same going into the beginning of the hand, but at the same time, how do we balance that with the the sort of like we got to kind of also tiptoe around this because it's a delicate. It's not like playing heads up, right? It's a great question. So, and this is where again theory gets kind of weird because theory really prioritizes when you start to three bet pots, especially at very deep stacked ups. Right? It really likes to favor the suited side of ranges, and the reason for that is when you take hands post flop and you start to build a big pot it's pretending you're playing against perfect players. Perfect players are going to know how to call two two streets of bluffs and three streets of bluffs accordingly. They're going to be very, very sticky. So barrel ability is extremely important, right? And when you have suited hands, you can flop backdoor flush draws, front door flush draws. You have connected hands that can flop backdoor straight draws and front door straight draws. Having that barrel ability is extremely important. In real life, right? We're not playing players who are going to call us with three streets with ASI, just not very often. So we get to kind of flip things, right? And so generally when I head into multi-way pots, um, I'm constructing my range in a way where I'm taking a lot of my offsuit broadways and turning those into squeeze bluffs. Um, The great thing about that is, you know, if I take a hand like King Jack offsuit and I squeeze from the button with it and I get four bet from the original opener, I don't really care, right? It's like, yeah, I lost my King Jack. When I do get three folds and I'm heads up, I still have a hand that can flop well. Um, but now it's just about playing my position, you know, putting a small seabed in, seeing if I can take it down on flop. Um, if the turn is a favorable card for us that I think is going to leverage some additional pressure on my opponent, I can take a little stab on the turn. I don't have to get crazy out of line. Um, and then when I have my suited hands, by flatting those hands, we put ourselves in a position where we're really not, the goal is not, hey, let's get top pair, right? Um, because, and that's one of the advantages of being seven ways. It's like, yes, being seven ways, you're not going to make as much money with top pair. But the money you're going to make when you hit your flushes and trips and sets and two pairs and straights and full houses is so much more that we don't mind that we're giving up a little bit of EV. And so like the example you said, you know, say say we have ace queen suited, right? And there's raise caller call call and we go ahead and do something a little spicy. We put ace queen suited into our calling range. Uh, Cuz we don't want to scare off four or five of hearts in the same suit as us and six eight of hearts in all those hands. And the flop comes like queen 7 4, right? Those are definitely spots we have to be very careful. And um Again, it gets to be a little bit situational, but what you just have to understand, you almost have to treat it like a bomb plot, right? Because when you're getting seven callers, they're not, there's nobody to the right of you that's like, what's my four callers in front of me, fifth call range, right? And they're like looking at a chart. they're, They're just like, sometimes they're literally not even looking at their cards. They're like, there's four callers. I'm not folding. You know, because it's that it's that if I hit mentality, right? If I call with my do seven offsuit, nobody's gonna put me on do seven offsuit. When I hit trips with my do seven offsuit, I'm gonna print. You guys are all laughing because you're like, I've done this before. I've seen this. Like, <laughs> yes, right? yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's one of those things where you just have to bring your hand strengths up a little bit, right? So normally, where 
top pair, top character would be really good. You're kind of treating that like second pair. And you might treat two pair like top pair and top kicker. And you might treat tips like two pair. You just kind of bring your hand strengths up a little bit and then ask yourself again, situationally, right? What would you do with second pair in this place? You know, if if the, the original razor bet and everybody folded to you, what would you do with second pair? That's kind of what I would do with top pair, top kicker and a multi-way side. And I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but if you just, if you get comfortable bringing those hand strings up, you don't have to learn a brand new system, right? You just have to equate this situation to a situation you already are very familiar with and just make a minor adjustment. I love that. That actually sounds a lot like uh, what Rob Washam's talked about um, in his book study. The last one we did was uh, Endgame Poker Strategy, uh, the ICM book by Daryl Carney and Barry Carter. And uh, they talk there about how in ICM situations, you kind of your hand strength drifts down. So if it used to be a bet now, so here, Rob, why don't you, you can probably explain this better than I can. Yeah. Well, because essentially in ICM situations, right. Um, you're, you're factoring in not just the EV of the hand and the EV of your chips, but you're factoring in your tournament life. Right. And so um, your tournament life has literally monetary value. And so when you're in a situation where you're looking at, you get to a flop and you have a potential stack off situation, um, it, it's not enough to have a chip EV call because sometimes you get into situations where it may be chip EV positive, but what it'll cost you in terms of the actual cost of losing your tournament is financially negative, right? And so then, especially like in bubble situations, satellites are like some of the best examples, right? In satellite situations, like you're in a spot where winning the hand might get you a slightly bigger stack or a slightly better chance of winning the tournament, losing the hand costs you a min cash. And, and, and I always tell people, I'm like, would you bet 35, let's say the min cash is $35. Would you bet $35 right now to increase the odds of you winning the tournament by $1.75, right? No, of course not. So now all of a sudden coin flips are good and, you know, 70 thirties are good. You really need like a 95, five spot. And so it's just a matter of in situationally speaking, when you get in those spots, you have to really crank up, you know, like it it can't be good enough to just be like, well, I might be live or, you know, as long as my opponent doesn't have a flush, I'm good. Like you really have to be like absolutely guaranteed because the min cash is guaranteed money. Um, so I think that's, it's, it's a similar concept in that like situationally speaking, um, hand values go down because of the, all of these other factors that are in play. And so you, the easiest way again to do it is just to shift up. And sometimes it has to be really extreme. You have to say, do I have the nuts? No. Sometimes it's literally, do I have the nuts and will they hold? Right. (laughs) Um, I've seen situations where you can flop the nuts, especially in like Omaha and some of the four card games. You can flop the nuts and fold correctly, correctly. Um, and, that, and that really kind of changes the entire dynamic of, of how we play the game. No, I love that. It's a great insight. Um, yeah, I think people get stuck on sort of the absolute value of their hands and they don't appreciate how important it is to examine the context uh, of the hand there. Um, so we've kind of talked about... Uh, bet sizes kind of sizing down because you still get to execute a lot of um, fold equity. And we've talked about um, capturing that equity. Uh, We've kind of talked about sort of this, this sense of playing more straightforwardly, you know, not necessarily bluffing less, but just kind of 
making sure you don't get out of line. Um, how important are other factors like stack depth? Like if you're if you're uh, looking at a situation pre-flop and you have a you have a, a, a circumstance where you could decide to either try and ISO raise and get it heads up or you could come along and play multi-way. What are some of the other factors that we should be thinking about when we're trying to decide, do I want to take this multi-way? And I mean, hand strength, the hand characteristics would be one of them. But are, does stack depth come into it or does like tournament stage come into it? Or some? what are some of the less obvious uh, things to be considering in that moment? So I think one of the biggest mistakes people will make, um, because this has been ingrained into us, anybody that's spent any length of time studying is the overlimp, right? Like we we get four limpers, like not even a raise in four callers, but there's literally four limpers. And we feel like uh, if we limp, for the fifth person, if we're the fifth person limp in the hand, then the church of poker God is going <laughs> to come into the room and strike us down. And lightning is going to come from the sky and we're going to end up being a Twitter post because, you know, one of the big high sticks <laughs> poker players is going to be like, did you see that guy in that table? He limped after four people limp. What a terrible play. Like, Again, it, it, it's it's very much when you when you're talking about like some of these other things like stack depth, right? Um, you have to ask yourself what your raise is getting you. And one of the dangers of squeezing when you start getting down to 50, 45, 40, 35 bigs is if you put yourself in a situation where let's say there's four limpers, right? And you're sitting on a 40 big blind stack and you squeeze to seven bigs. Well, if you get two callers. Now you're at an SPR of like 1.5. And this is this is causes multiple problems. The first problem it causes is you have a kind of an awkward stack where you can't really fire two barrels, right? But you don't really know if one barrel is going to work, but overshoving is kind of weird. And so now you've just again unnecessarily inflated a pot um, where you have no idea where you're at because you're playing up against people that aren't playing, you know, normal ranges. And you're kind of just stuck praying that you can get a bet through and get away. So when you start getting to like 60 big blinds and down, you really have to be confident in the uh, effectiveness of your squeezes. Now, nobody's a mastermind and can see the future and is going to know. Sometimes you've been at a table, it's been tight the whole day, and you just run into it. You make a raise and you get a couple callers. It's going to happen. But you should be at a point where you've been at the table long enough to have a feel for it. And this is where like when I'm in tables like this and I've played tournaments like this, I'm always trying to figure out the bounds. And what I mean by figure out the bounds is like, I will not just in principle always raise to the same size on, especially in tables like this. Like if I raise to six big blinds and I get three folds, well, the next time I'm going to raise to five, because I want to see what the threshold is. I want to see at what point, they're like, oh, I got a call. Um, and sometimes you'll find out you'll get down to like three bigs. Like you, you'll get really weird tables where sizing as you think would never work um, will work. On the flip side, sometimes you get to tables and you have to start raising bigger. You just have to understand when you start going bigger, you're usually if you go bigger one or two notches and you don't find success, the answer is there's not, there's not a price. Like you're gonna end up shoving all in for 60 big blinds pre-flop. Um, so when I start getting down to stacked ups of like 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, if I'm at a table where I don't feel like I'm going to get a lot of success squeezing, then I'm just going to, again, kind of come over to the suited side of the board. I'm going to come over to the connected side of the board. I'm going to come over to my pocket pairs and I'm going to kind of shift some of the offsuit garbage out. 
Um, because otherwise you're just going to end up in spots again, like ace jack off strong hands, right? Good raw equity. But when you go five ways to the flop with it, how often are you going to realize that equity really, really little because you're basically hoping again to flop two pair flop a straight flop, a set of trips. Uh, and when you don't hit those things, you have no visibility to understand where you're at in the hand and you're just kind of blindly betting and hoping at that point. So I think that's one big thing. Um, when you get down is being very careful about your squeezes in terms of like stages of the tournament. Um, obviously people will be sticky all day long until that money bubble comes. And we start getting like 20, 25, 30 from the bubble in a medium sized tournament, a hundred from the bubble in a big tournament. Like Jim, you saw some of the WSFP events we were in. They were like really big fields. Like you'd be 800 from the money. And then like five hands later, you're like 20 from the money. Um, <laughs> obviously those are spots we can reevaluate all that we've talked about. So if you've had a very sticky table, that's going eight ways of the flop. None of that matters once you get on the money bubble. Now you may get to the money bubble and find out they're still that way, but more often than not, that stuff shuts down. Same within the money. Usually when you get in the money, um, people are so excited to cash. They're so excited to see the pay jumps. They're they're pulling the Allen Kessler and they're getting up every two minutes to see how far away the next pay jump is. They're, they're looking at the clock instead of even look like some people literally, they're not even paying attention to the hand because they're like so fixated on the clock. Now, you know, you're in a spot where you can start to squeeze more and start to take advantage of these things. So I think the two things most there are, are being cognizant of your stack depth and being careful not to blow pots when your stack dips get shallow because you're not going to have a lot of success post-flop. And then also, um, yeah, when you start to get to the points in the tournament where fold equity really starts to rise to the top, you got to kind of reevaluate your table and kind of give it a fresh slate and 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 test the waters again to see where you're at and then just the one other thing you brought up as far as like hand construction um like i ever think everybody knows that like suited aces are like really good hands obviously in multiple pots but a lot of the i don't see a lot of people getting to like king do suited queen three suited type hands and those hands are incredibly good because not only are they you know second nut third nut draw flush draws but when you have like a high card low card you're unblocking all of those suited connectors and suited gappers that people love to play. And so like sometimes in multi-way pots, a King do suited is better than a King eight suited. Cause we're not hoping to run into two, three suited very often, but like now all of those eight nines, eight tens, eight sevens, eight sixes are all in play. And it's not like the kicker matters. Cause again, we're not playing for top pair, right? We're not playing to hit King eight, six, and then go with our King deuce. We're playing for, for much bigger pot or, you know, much stronger hand strength. And so people kind of shy away from those hands and those hands actually play incredibly well and profitable uh, in multi-way situations because of that unblocking nature of the flushes and straights. Cause you know, flush over straight is a thing too. Um, so those are hands that I think people miss that sometimes you want to, you want to kind of bring into the mix with us. Yeah, I love that. Um, I could see Chris was like getting excited like it was Christmas morning over here earlier. I uh, started talking about sizing. Uh, the theme of the month in December was playing against limpers. And the theme of the month in February is uh, sizing. And so we've been talking a lot sort of o over the course of the last little while about exactly the spot that you mentioned at the top of the show, Rob, um, where, you know, you get to this table and you're trying to find that threshold. You're trying to find that pain point, that that number that people start folding to. 
And, I'm sorry uh, to hear that the podcast is ending in March because once you've taught them how to master limpers and sizing and multi-way pots, they're not going to have anything left to learn from you, Jim. That's the, that's that's the end of right. poker, guys. It was great. You had fun. You guys are all taking the master class now. Like, yeah, we're, we're going to start rebranding as uh, Pro Poker starting in March of 2023. Y'all you heard it here first, folks. Rob Gardner brought it on. Can I get the first okay. hat? You can absolutely get the first hat, my friend. All right, booked. We got a deal. Perfect. <laughs> um, so I guess my last question for you, and, and I know if Ben and Rob and Chris have any more, uh, we'll happily uh, bend your ear for a little longer. But um, as you realize that you have to start sizing up in order to get uh, some folds, how how does the strength of your range correlate to that? Like, like do you have to start narrowing your range as soon as you go up a few pot sizes or do you just drastically drop off a cliff when you get up into double digits or something like that or do you maintain your range and just use bigger sizes to leverage the situations that you're trying because i I think people do have trouble with this kind of these cusp situations where they feel like they should be raising but they get uncomfortable doing it to the size that will generate the folds that they're trying to get yeah, so this this comes down to really paying attention to your opponents and understanding how they react post-flop. Um, remember, in a lot of these squeeze situations, our goal is to have position. Like one of the reasons in a vacuum that overcalling or overlimping is so bad is we allow people behind us a really cheap cost to get position on us. And we know equity realization and position go hand in hand. They're massive, right? So when we're squeezing, generally speaking, even when we're getting multiple callers, it's going to be out of position people. And then we get into a situation where we get post-flop, we see a flop. The number one question is, how do my opponents react to C-bets? We still, very fortunately, live in an era where quarter pot C-bets are incredibly profitable. And there is an extensive amount of data from HUDs, from the low stakes all the way up to the nosebleeds, like you wouldn't think in the nosebleeds that like quarter bet C pot or quarter pot C bets are profitable, even in nosebleeds, like because again, a quarter pot C bet only has to work a fifth of the time, right? You can actually not get that bet through a majority of the time and still be mathematically profitable. So this is where you have to have an understanding of the people you're going up against and how they're gonna react. Um, one of the things I learned early on in my uh training with Ryan that was mind blowing to me, you know, we were talking about raising the button against the big blind and I had raised to like three, three big blinds from the button. He's like, why are you raising so big? And I'm like, well, I don't want him to call. And he was like, what if you make more money when you call? And I was like, what do you mean? What if I make more money when he calls? I'm going to make more money if he folds. And he's like, well, no, because when he calls, he's going to fold, you know, 76% of the time on the flop. And now you're winning an even bigger pot than you would if you won the blinds. And it's a similar concept here in multi-way pots. If you're up against opponents who routinely don't check raise enough and don't float enough on flops, and you can get away with small C-bets, at that point, you really get to open your squeeze range up a lot. Because the reality of the situation is, no matter what happens when you get to that flop and that one sticky person calls, um, you're going to print money on that C-bet. And I've been in tournaments where literally... There's a guy who will limp call every time and he <laughs> gives you the stink eye every time. And then I'll make a 10%. I've done this literally 10% bet on the flop. 
and he just shakes his head and throws his cards in the muck, right? And then the very next time he does the same thing. Why? Because because in his mind, like I'm the luckiest guy on the planet, and <laughs> keeps smashing I'm these the nuts every time. And his king, queen, and jack ten keeps missing the board, and he keeps calling because he's going to get me, and he has no idea that like. I got the same hand he does, right? Because <laughs> I have the position I can bet. So if you're in a situation where you're playing with the types of players, and, and again, this is where you have to pay attention a little bit live, especially to how they're reacting to see bets, even in hands you're not in, and you got a good feel for like, hey, I got good fold equity on flops. Then we get to really open up. If we're playing people again who don't fold as much on flops, then it gets back to more of a theory thing where we need barrel ability. We need to be able to, to bet twice a decent amount of time because there are wrecks out there and casual players out there and people who are even new to the game who don't study, don't work on their game, but they still know they got to call one street, right? Um, they've got that mentality. So um, I hate to keep saying things are situational, but I think especially in live poker and even somewhat in online poker, you just have to be aware of these things and be willing to adjust. Cause if you just come and fixated on the strategy of like, I'm just going to squeeze every time people limp and I'm going to give it to them and I'm going to give them a big bet on the flop. That could be the best strategy in the world on some tables. And it could be literally lighting money on fire in others. Yeah. I really just want to reinforce that point that you made, Rob. Um, people feel like if they bluff with a three bet or they bluff on the flop and they don't get the fold, sometimes they feel this sort of like, Oh, despair and agony on me. You know, um, it didn't work. But you, the fact is if people, continue with weak ranges then they get to future streets with weak ranges which means that they have to overfold on future streets and you actually win a bigger pot because they've put some money in the pot along the way so it's not it's not the end of the world if people are uh, not folding to your raises uh, or to your c bets as long as you know how to navigate future streets and know which cards are good for your range or bad for their range and that kind of thing yeah, and I would just I would I would just real quick I just add to that because you just the way you said that was brilliant. Like this is where you get to get outside the box with your sizings. And I, I think multi-way pots are one of the best places to get really creative with your sizings. Cause you know, you mentioned like bringing weak ranges to the flop and the turn and the river. And one of the simple ways to understand uh sizings and to think about sizings that, that doesn't always get taught is don't think of sizings in terms of like, well, what it means about my range. Think of sizings in terms of how much you want to squeeze your opponent's range, right? Mm. And sometimes you can go really small and flop and not squeeze their range much and go really small and turn and not squeeze their range much. And now when all the draws have busted down the river, now you can now you can bring a bet that in a pot that's still decently small and fold out a massive part of their range. Whereas if you go really, really big on flop and you go really, really big on turn, now you've gotten to the river and you have this really tiny condensed range. Good luck. Like, like you, <laughs> you, you've already at this point, like you should have folded out a lot of his range and now you have no plan. And so I love how you said that, like, especially in multi-way pots, like we don't have to get fixated in this world of 33%, 66%, 125, right? Like that's the most three common sizing rules that people put out. You don't have to get fixated on that. Like be willing to come into this 20, 10, 15 range. Cause in real on in, in brutal honesty and reality, um, even in the GTO theory world, like 
ideally we would run sims with 12 different or 15 different or ultimately infinite different sizings. And if we did that, we would find situationally all of them would be used. It's mm. not, it's not this thing of like, they're like you put infinite sizings in and they're just like 33. Ah, and they <laughs> and there's like, you know, gold powder falling from the sky. It's just, people are trying to simplify insanely, infinitely complex situations. And so please, please, please have fun with it. Have fun experimenting with a 10% C-bat on flop or a 15 or, or again, you could go the other way, have fun going big with it. Just understand that when you use those big sizings and people say, I call, believe what they're telling you. Like, yes. <laughs> don't, don't get the big call and go, ah, they're full of it. I'm going to, you know, and just fire it away. And if, you know, you like, like understand the dynamics of those, but get creative, get outside the box. And, and like you said, keep the range weak for a while and then pound when, when all of that unrealized equity is died in busted flush draws and straight draws. That's beautiful. And I guess the last uh, thought I'll leave our audience with on that is also think about how the top of your opponent's range might respond to small bets as well. And when they decline to raise or to get aggressive, they're also kind of capping their own range and, and they're kind of telling us that they don't have a monster. And that, that does wonderful things to your ability to, to take it away on future streets as well. You got to stop making good points, Jim, or we're never going to get this. <laughs> All right. Because, because honestly, um, one of the reasons I'll, I'll this will be my last, last, last point. One of the reasons <laughs> the small bets work so incredibly well. Okay. Is what you just meant. You just nailed it. You could write a book on this, Jim, because when you get to the flop and they flop a set and you bet 10% and they call, you just rob them of equity. Now think about that. They bought, they flopped a set. You bet with the losing hand and you rob them of equity because their, their profit should be way more than 10% in that situation. So you actually steal money from them by making a small bet because they don't have the willingness to raise in a spot they should be raising. And the smaller we go, they should be raising massive amounts of the range. And in real life, it just never happens. Okay, I'm not going to listen to whatever you say next. That way I don't. <laughs> one, thing, one thing you said, Jim, is you're they're capping their range. But they're not. Because I've played with many people that will limp with aces. You raise, they call. Mm. that top of their range is still there. I mean, if they're, mm -hmm. if they're going to limp with aces or ace king or even kings and, and they play it passively all the way down to the river and all mm -hmm. of a sudden you get to the river and they show up with aces or kings, you go, how can you have that hand there? Because <laughs> you would never play that way, but they do. So And then, I, and then I, they storm I, out when they get cracked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it just goes to show how important it is, like Rob was saying at the beginning, Pay attention to the table. Every table is different. You know, different players at the table are going to have different uh, uh, eccentricities and peccadillos. And you really have to kind of know who you're playing against and how they're going to surprise you. Um, you know, know the errors that they're going to make and, and punish them accordingly. Well, Rob, I think uh, we could probably have almost as much fun if we did this again next week. Uh, you want to come on back and we can talk about a hand and see if we can tease some more fun out for our audience? You bet. All right, sweet. Well, then. Without any further ado, I want to thank the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino, Ben, Rob, and Chris, and of course, Rob Gardner for coming out here and letting us bask in this poker knowledge on Multiway Pot. Thank you, the listeners. We'll see you next week.